Chapter Thirty Two of Fighting the Flames by R. M. Ballantyne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel. Fighting the Flames by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Thirty Two: The Fire in Tooley Street. One of those great calamities which visit us once or twice, it may be, in a century descended upon London on Saturday, the 22nd of June, 1861. It was the sudden, and, for the time, overwhelming, attack of an old and unconquerable enemy, who found us, as usual, inadequately prepared to meet him. Fire has fought with us and fed upon us since we became a nation, and yet, despite all our efforts, its flames are at this day more furious than ever. There are more fires daily in London now than there ever were before. Has this foe been properly met is a question which naturally arises out of this fact. Referring to the beautiful organization of the present fire brigade, the ability of its chiefs and the courage of its men, the answer is yes, decidedly. But referring to the strength of the brigade, to the munitions of war in the form of water, to the means of conveyance in the form of mains, to the system of check in the shape of an effective act in reference to partition walls and moderately sized warehouses, to the means of prevention in the shape of prohibitions and regulations in regard to inflammable substances, referring to all these things, the answer to the question, has the foe been properly met, is emphatically no. It is not sufficient to reply that a special inquiry has been made into this subject, that steps are being actually taken to remedy the evils of our system, or rather, our want of system, of fire prevention. Good may or may not result from this inquiry, that is yet to be seen. Meanwhile, the public ought to be awakened more thoroughly to the fact that an enemy is, and always has been abroad in our land, who might be, if we chose, more effectively checked, who, if he has not yet attacked our own particular dwelling, may take us by surprise any day when we least expect him, and who does at all times very materially diminish our national wealth and increase our public burdens. Perhaps we should not style fire an enemy, but a mutinous servant, who does his work faithfully and well, except when neglected or abused. About five o'clock on Saturday afternoon, intelligence of the outbreak of fire in Tooley Street reached the headquarters of the brigade in Watling Street. Fire in Tooley Street! The mere summons lent energy to the nerves and spring to the muscles of the firemen. Not that Tooley Street in itself is more peculiarly dangerous in regard to fire than are the other streets of shops in the city but Tooley Street lies in a dangerous neighborhood. The streets between it and the Thames, and those lying immediately to the west of it, contain huge warehouses and bonded stores, which are filled to suffocation with the wealth of nations. Dirty streets and narrow lanes here lead to the fountainhead of wealth untold, almost inconceivable. The elegant filigree work of West End luxury may here be seen unsmelted, as it were, and in the ore. At the same time, the rich substances on which fire feeds and fattens are stored here in warehouses which, as they are, should never have been built, and in proximities which should never have been permitted. Examine the wharves, Brooks' Wharf, Beale's Wharf, Cotton's Wharf, Chamberlain's Wharf, Freeman's Wharf, Griffin's Wharf, Stanton's Wharf, and others. Investigate the lanes, Hayes Lane, Mill Lane, Morgan's Lane, and the streets, Bermondsey, Dockhead, Pickle Herring Street, Horsley Down, and others, and there, besides the great deposit and commission warehouses which cover acres of ground, and are filled from basement to ridge pole with the commodities and combustibles of every clime, 
you will find huge granaries and stores of lead, alum, drugs, tallow, chicory, flour, rice, biscuit, sulphur, and saltpetre, mingled with the warehouses of cheese agents, ham factors, provision merchants, tarpaulin dealers, oil and color merchants, etc. In fact, the entire region seems laid out with a view to the raising of a bonfire, or a pyrotechnic display on the grandest conceivable scale. Little wonder, then, that the firemen of Watling Street turned out all their engines, including two of Shand and Mason's new land-steam fire-engines, which had at that time just been brought into action. Little wonder that the usual request for a man from each station was changed into an urgent demand for every man that could possibly be spared. The fire began in the extensive wharves and warehouses known as Cotton's Wharf, near London Bridge, and was first observed in a warehouse over a counting-room by some workmen, who at once gave the alarm and attempted to extinguish it with some buckets of water. They were quickly driven back, however, by the suffocating smoke, which soon filled the various floors so densely that no one could approach the seat of the fire. Mr. Braidwood, who was early on the spot, saw at a glance that a pitched battle was about to be fought, and, like a wise general, concentrated all the force at his command. Expresses were sent for the more distant brigade engines, and these came dashing up, one after another, at full speed. The two powerful steam-floating engines, which guard the Thames from the fire, were moored off the wharf. Two lengths of hose attached them, and led on shore and brought to bear on the fire. A number of land engines took up a position in Tooley Street, ready for action, but these were compelled to remain idle for nearly an hour, before water was obtainable from the fire-plugs. Oh, London, with all your wealth and wisdom, how strange that such words can be truly written of you! The vessels which were lying at the wharf, discharging and loading, were hauled out of danger into the stream. In course of time the engines were in full play, but the warehouse burst into flames from basement to roof in spite of them, and ere long eight of the great storehouses were burning furiously. The flames made rapid work of it, progressing towards the line of warehouses facing the river, and to the lofty building which adjoined the Tooley Street side. Dale and his men were quickly on the scene of action, and had their engines soon at work. Before long Frank Wilders joined them. They were playing in at the windows of a large store which was burning so furiously that the interior appeared to be red-hot. "'Relieve Corny, lad,' said Dale, as Frank came forward. "'Oh, it's time!' cried Corny, delivering up the branch to Frank and Moxie. "'Sure, Baxmore and me are melted entirely.' Frank made no reply. He and Moxie directed the branch which the others resigned, turning their backs as much as possible on the glowing fire and glancing at it over their shoulders, for it was too hot to be faced. Just then the chief of the brigade came up. "'It's of no use, sir,' said Dale. "'We can't save these.' "'True, Dale, true,' said Mr. Braidwood, in a quick but quiet tone. "'This block is doomed. Take your lads round to the nor'east corner. We must try to prevent it spreading.' As he surveyed the progress of the fire, with a cool, practical eye, and hurried off to another part of the battlefield to post his men to best advantage, Little did the leader of the forces think that he was to be the first to fall that day. Engines were now playing on the buildings in all directions, but the flames were so fierce that they made no visible impression on them, and even in the efforts made to check their spreading, little success appeared to attend them at first. Warehouse after warehouse ignited. To make matters worse, a fresh breeze sprang up and fanned the flames into redoubled fury, so that they quickly caught hold of vast portions of the premises occupied by the firm of Scovel and Company. "'There's not a chance,' said Frank to Dale, while he wiped the perspiration from his forehead, and sat down for a few seconds to recover breath. 
for he had just issued from a burning building, driven back by heat and smoke. "'There's not a chance of saving that block. All the iron doors that were meant to keep the fire from spreading have been left open by the workmen.' "'Chance or no chance, we must do our best,' said Dale. "'Come, lad, with me. I think we may get at a door inside the next warehouse, through which we might bring the branch to bear. Are you able?' "'All right!' exclaimed Frank, leaping up, and following his leader through the smoke. "'Have a care!' cried Frank, pausing as a tremendous explosion caused the ground to tremble under their feet. "'It's sulphur, or saltpetre,' said Dale, pushing on. "'There are tons of that stuff in the cellars all round.' This was indeed the case. It was said that upwards of two thousand tons of saltpetre were in the vaults at the time, and several explosions had already taken place, though fortunately without doing injury to any one. Dale had already partially examined the warehouse, into which he now led Frank, and therefore, although it was full of smoke, he moved rapidly along the narrow and intricate passages between the bales of goods, until he reached an iron door. "'Here it is. We'll open this and have a look,' he said, grasping the handle and swinging the heavy door open. Instantly a volume of black smoke drove both the men back, almost suffocating them. They could not speak, but each knew that the reclosing of that iron door was all-important, for the fire had got nearer to it than Dale had imagined. They both darted forward, but were again driven back, and had to rush to the open air for breath. Frank recovered before his comrade, in consequence of the latter having made a more strenuous and prolonged effort to close the door, which he had so unfortunately opened. Without a moment's hesitation he sprang into the warehouse again, regained and partially closed the door, when the stifling smoke choked him and he fell to the ground. A few seconds later Dale followed him, and found him there. Applying his great strength with almost superhuman energy to the door, it shut with a crash, and the communication between the buildings was cut off. Dale then seized Frank by the collar and dragged him into the open air, when he himself almost sank to the ground. Fresh air, however, soon restored them both, and in a few minutes they were actively engaged at another part of the building. It availed not, for nothing could withstand the fury of the fire. The warehouse caught— and was soon a glowing mass like the others, while the flames raged with such violence that their roaring drowned the shouting of men, and the more distant roar of the innumerable multitude that densely covered London Bridge, and clustered on every eminence from which a safe view of the great fire could be obtained. The floating fire-engines had now been at work for some time, and the men in charge of their branches were suffering greatly from the intense heat. About this time, nearly seven o'clock in the evening, Mr. Braidwood went to these men to give them a word of encouragement. He proceeded down one of the approaches to the river from Tooley Street, and stopped when nearly halfway to give some directions, when a sudden and tremendous explosion took place, shaking the already tottering walls, which at this place were of great height. A cry was raised, "'Run! The wall is falling!' Everyone sprang away at the word. The wall bulged out at the same time, and one of the firemen, seeing that Mr. Braidwood was in imminent danger, made a grasp at him as he was springing from the spot. But the heavy masses of brickwork dashed him away, and in another moment the gallant chief of the fire brigade lay buried under at least fifteen feet of burning ruin. Any attempt at rescue would have been impossible as well as unavailing, for death must have been instantaneous. The hero's warfare with the flames, which had lasted for upwards of thirty-eight years, was ended, and his brave spirit returned to God who gave it. That a man of no ordinary note had fallen was proved, before many hours had passed, by the deep and earnest feeling of sorrow and sympathy which was manifested by all classes in London, from Queen Victoria downwards, as well as by the public funeral which took place a few days afterwards. 
at which were present the Duke of Sutherland, the Earl of Caithness, the Reverend Dr. Cumming, and many gentlemen connected with the insurance offices, the committee and men of the London Fire Brigade, also those of various private and local brigades, the secretary and conductors of the Royal Society for the Protection of Life from Fire, the Mounted Metropolitan and City Police, the London Rifle Brigade, of which Mr. Braidwood's three sons were members, the superintendents and men of the various water companies, and a long string of private and mourning carriages, to witness the progress of which hundreds of thousands of people densely crowded the streets, and clustered in the windows and on every available eminence along the route, while in Cheapside almost all the shops were shut and business was suspended, and in the neighborhood of the shore-ditch toiling thousands of artisans came forth from factory and workshop to see the last of Braidwood, whose name had been so long familiar to them as a household word. The whole heart of London seemed to have been moved by one feeling, and the thousands who thronged the streets had, in the language of one of the papers of the day, gathered together to witness the funeral not of a dead monarch, not of a great warrior, not of a distinguished statesman, not even of a man famous in art, in literature, or in science, but simply of James Braidwood, late superintendent of the London Fire Engine Establishment a true hero and one who was said by those who knew him best to be an earnest christian man but at the moment of his fall men were engaged in the thick of battle crushing though the news of his death was there was no breathing time to realize it the fierce heat had not only driven back the firemen on the shore but had compelled the floating fire engines to haul off in consequence of the flaming matter which poured over the wharf wall and covered the surface of the river the entire length of the burning warehouses while the whole of the carriageway of Tooley Street was ankle-deep in hot oil and tallow. After the fall of their chief, Messrs. Henderson and Fogo, two of the principal officers of the brigade, did their utmost to direct the energies of the men. Night closed in, and the flames continued to rage in all their fury and magnificence. News of this great fire spread with the utmost rapidity over the metropolis. Indeed, it was visible at Hampstead, while it was yet daylight. When darkness set in, one of the most extraordinary scenes that London ever produced was witnessed. From all quarters the people came pouring in, on foot, in omnibus, cab, pleasure van, cart, and wagon, all converging to London Bridge. At nine o'clock the bridge and its approaches presented all the appearance of the Epsom Road on the Derby Day. Cabs and buses plied backwards and forwards on the bridge all night carrying an unlimited number of passengers at two pence and three pence each, and thousands of persons spent the night in thus passing to and fro. The railway terminus, Billingsgate Market, the roof of the coal exchange, the monument, the quays, the windows, the housetops, the steeples, and the chimney-stalks, all were crowded with human beings whose eager upturned faces were rendered intensely bright against the surrounding darkness by the fierce glare of the fire but the thames presented the most singular appearance of all now reflecting on its bosom the inky black clouds of smoke anon the red flames as fresh fuel was licked up by the devouring element and occasionally sheets of silver light that flashed through the chaos when sulphur and saltpetre explosions occurred mountains of flame frequently burst away from the mass of burning buildings and floated upward for a few moments and the tallow and tar which flowed out of the warehouses floated away blazing with the tide, and set the shipping on fire, so that land and water alike seemed to be involved in one huge, terrific conflagration. The utmost consternation prevailed on board the numerous craft on the river, in the vicinity of the fire, 
for thick showers of sparks and burning materials fell incessantly. Gusts of wind acted on the ruins now and then, and at such moments the gaunt walls, cracked and riven out of shape, stood up, glowing with intense white heat in the midst of a sea of fire from which red flames and dark clouds of smoke were vomited, as from the crater of some mighty volcano, with a roar that mingled with the shouts of excited thousands and drowned even the dull incessant thumpings of the engines that worked in all directions. Moored alongside of Chamberlain's Wharf was a small sloop. Little blue blisters of light broke out on her rigging, soon these increased in size and in a few minutes she was on fire from stem to stem immediately after there came a barge with flowing sails borne on the rising tide she passed too near to the conflagration her crew of three men became panic-stricken and lost control of her at sight of this a great shout was raised and a boat put off and rescued the crew but almost before they were landed their barge was alight from stem to stern the tremendous cheer that burst from the excited multitude at sight of this rescue rose for a moment above the roaring of the conflagration. Then another barge was set on fire by the blazing tallow which floated out to her, but she was saved by being scuttled. In the midst of such a scene it was to be expected that there would be damage to life and limb. The firemen, besides being exposed to intense heat for hours, were almost blinded and choked by the smoke emitted from the burning pepper, more especially the cayenne, of which there was a large quantity in the warehouses. Some of the men who were working the engines fell into the river and were drowned. A gentleman who was assisting the firemen had his hand impaled on an iron spike. A poor Irishman had his neck broken by the chain of the floating engine, and several of the police force and others were carried to the hospital badly burned and otherwise injured. Some of the casualties occurred in places where only a few persons were there to witness them, but others were enacted on the river and on spots which were in full view of the vast multitudes on London Bridge. A boat containing five men put off to collect the tallow which floated on the water, but it got surrounded by tallow which had caught fire, and the whole of its occupants were either burned to death or drowned. Later in the night a small skiff rowed by a single man was drawn by the tide into the vortex of the fire. Another boat ran out and saved the man, but a second boat, which was pulled off by a single rower for the same purpose, was drawn too near the fire, and its brave occupant perished. So eager were the multitude on the bridge to witness these scenes that some of themselves were forced over the parapet into the river and drowned. Comical incidents were strangely mingled with these awful scenes, although it is but justice to say the prevailing tone of the crowd was one of solemnity. Itinerant vendors of ginger-beer, fruit, cakes, and coffee ranged themselves along the pavements and carried on a brisk trade, especially after the public-houses were closed, many of which, however, taking advantage of the occasion, kept open door all night. Among these last was the angel, belonging to Gorman. That worthy was peculiarly active on this occasion. He never neglected an opportunity of turning an honest penny, and, accordingly, he had been engaged from an early hour in his boat collecting tallow, of which plunder a considerable amount had been already conveyed to his abode. Besides Gorman, several of the other personages of our tale found their way to the great centre of attraction, London Bridge, on that night. Among them was John Barrett, who, on hearing of the fire, had left his snug little villa and pretty little wife to witness it. He had already made one or two cheap trips on one of the omnibuses, and about midnight got down and forced his way to a position near the south side of the bridge. Here he was attracted to a ginger-beer barrow which an unusually adventurous man had pushed through the crowd into a sheltered corner. 
He forced his way to it, and, to his amazement, found the owner to be his former friend, Ned Hooper. "'Hello, Barrett!' "'Why, Ned!' were the exclamations that burst simultaneously from their lips. "'This is a strange occupation,' said Barrett, with a smile. "'Ah, it may seem strange to you, no doubt, but it's familiar enough to me,' replied Ned, with a grin. The demand for beer was so great at this time that Ned could not continue the conversation. "'Here, boy,' he said to an urchin who stood near, "'you draw corks as fast as you can and pour out the beer, and I'll give you a copper or two and a swig into the bargain.' The boy accepted the post of salesman with alacrity, and Ned turned to his friend and seized his hand. "'Barrett,' said he, in a low, earnest voice, "'if I succeed in holding out, I own my salvation, under God, to you.' I've tasted nothing but ginger beer for many a long day, and I really believe that I've got my enemy down at last. It's not a lucrative business, as you may see, he added with a sad smile, glancing at his threadbare garments, nor a very aristocratic one. My dear Ned, cried Barrett, interrupting, and suddenly thrusting his hand into his pocket. No, Barrett, no, said Ned firmly, as he laid his hand on the other's arm. I don't want money. I've given up begging. You gave me your advice once, and I've taken that. It has been of more value to me than all the wealth that is being melted into thin air, John, by yonder fire. Ned was interrupted at this point by a burst of laughter from the crowd. The cause of their mirth was the appearance of a tall, thin, and very lugubrious-looking man, who had come on the bridge to see the fire. He had got so excited that he had almost fallen over the parapet, and a policeman had kindly offered to escort him to a place of safety. "'Why, what do you mean? What do you take me for?' cried the tall man angrily. I'm an honest man. My name is David Boone. I've only come to see the fire. You've no occasion to lay hold on me. I know that, said the policeman. I only want to get you out of danger. Come along now. Just then, a thick-set man with a red handkerchief tied round his head came forward to the stall and demanded a glass of beer. The moment his eyes encountered those of Boone, he became pale as death and staggered back as if he had received a deadly blow. Is that you, Gorman? cried David in a voice and with an expression of amazement gorman did not reply but gazed at his former friend with a look of intense horror while his chest heaved and he breathed laboriously suddenly he uttered a loud cry and rushed towards the river part of the crowd sprang after him as if with a view to arrest him or to see what he meant to do in the rush barrett and boone were carried away a few moments later a deep murmur of surprise rose from the thousands of spectators on the bridge for a boat was seen to dash suddenly from the shore and sweep out on the river. It was propelled by a single rower, a man with a red kerchief tied round his head. The murmur of the crowd suddenly increased to a shout of alarm, for the man was rowing, his boat straight towards a mass of tallow which floated and burned on the water. "'Hold on! Look out ahead!' shouted several voices, while others screamed, "'Too late! He's gone!' and then there arose a wild cry, for the man rode straight into the centre of the burning mass and was enveloped in the flames. For a moment he was seen to rise and to swing his arms in the air, then he fell backwards over the gunwale of his boat and disappeared into the blazing flood. Fiercer and fiercer raged the fire. The night passed, the day came and went, and night again set in, yet still the flames leaped and roared in resistless fury, and still the firemen fought them valiantly. And thus they fought, day and night, hand to hand, for more than a fortnight, before the battle was thoroughly ended and the victory gained. How the firemen continued to do their desperate work, day and night, almost without rest, it is impossible to tell. Frank Wilders said that, after the first night, he went about his work like a man in a dream. He scarcely knew when, or how, or where he rested or ate. 
he had an indistinct remembrance of one or two brief intervals of oblivion when he supposed he must have been asleep but the only memory that remained strong and clear within him was that of constant determined fighting with the flames and willie wilders followed him like his shadow clad in a coat and helmet borrowed from a friend in the salvage corps willie fought in that great fight as if he had been a trained fireman on the fourth day towards evening frank was ordered down into a cellar where some tar barrels were burning he seized the branch and was about to leap down the stair when dale stopped him fasten the rope to your belt he said frank obeyed without speaking and then sprang forward while dale himself followed ordering corney baxmore and one or two others to hold on to the ropes willie willers also ran in but was met by such a dense cloud of smoke that he was almost choked rushing back he shouted haul on the ropes the men were already hauling them in and in a few seconds dale and frank were dragged by their waist belts into the open air the former nearly and the latter quite insensible in a few minutes they both recovered and another attempt was made to reach the fire in the cellar but without success the public did not witness this incident the firemen were almost surrounded by burning ruins, and none but comrades were there. Indeed, the public seldom see the greatest dangers to which the fireman is exposed. It is not when he makes his appearance on some giddy height on a burning and tottering house, and is cheered enthusiastically by the crowd, that his courage is most severely tried. It is when he has to creep on hands and knees through dense smoke, and hold the branch in the face of the withering heat, while beams are cracking over his head and burning rubbish is dropping round and threatening to overwhelm him it is in such circumstances when the public know nothing of what is going on and when no eye sees him save that of the solitary comrade who shares his toil and danger that the fireman's nerve and endurance are tested to the uttermost after leaving the cellar dale and his men went to attempt to check the fire in a quarter where it threatened to spread and render this the greatest of modern conflagrations, equal to the great one of 1666. "'We might reach it from that window,' said Dale to Frank, pointing to a house, the sides of which were already blistering, and the glass cracking with heat. Frank seized the branch and gained the window in question, but he could not do anything very effective from that point. He thought, however, that from a window in an adjoining store he might play directly on a house which was in imminent danger.' but the only means of reaching it was by passing over a charred beam thirty feet beneath which lay a mass of smouldering ruins for one moment he hesitated uncertain whether or not the beam would sustain his weight but the point to be gained was one of great importance so he stepped boldly forward carrying the branch with him as he advanced the light of the fire fell brightly upon him revealing his tall figure clearly to the crowd which cheered him heartily at that moment the beam gave way Willie, who was about to follow, had barely time to spring back and gain a firm footing when he beheld his brother fall headlong into the smoking ruins below. In another moment he had leaped down the staircase and was at Frank's side. Baxmore, Dale, Corney, and others followed, and in the midst of fire and smoke they raised their comrade in their arms and bore him to a place of safety. No one spoke, but a stretcher was quickly brought and frank was conveyed in a state of insensibility to the nearest hospital where his manly form shattered burned and lacerated was laid on a bed he breathed although he was unconscious and evinced no sign of feeling when the surgeons examined his wounds a messenger was dispatched for mrs wilders and willie remained to watch beside him while his comrades went out to continue the fight End of chapter thirty two